Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Who wants to lift some weights? Seriously, who want to get strong like me, Tucker Ives? I'm serious. How about you? The little girl with the funny hair. I don't appreciate you calling Hold me. your arms up like this. Now Tucker Ives is going to climb up on this stepladder and start piling books on your dumb ass hands. This one is Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace. You ever read that, Dreadlock Girl? Well, I started it one Who time. cares? Now I'm putting the Pale King on top of it. That also by David Foster Wallace, only he died before he finished it. How's that feel? It's getting a little heavy on my wrist. Now ask me if I care. Poor David Foster Wallace is not complaining about no wrist now, is he? This is Broom of the System, his first book. And this is Gravity's Rainbow, which in my estimation was a major source of inspiration. And these are the collected works of Mr. Don DeLillo. Wouldn't be no David Foster Wallace without Mr. Don. How those skinny little arms doing, hippie girl? I don't think I can keep... One more, one more. I got a tiny-ass book here. This is Water, basically a graduation speech by David Foster Wallace. 137 pages. I'm putting this on top of the pile now. I don't want to do this anymore. You know who told me that? Joyce Carol Oates. She was a little skinny crybaby just like you. The other day, she knocked out Amy Tan in four rounds. Because she stuck with Tucker Ives. Made something of her sad little noodle self. You want to keep going? Would I have to lift Norman Mailer books? That's what I call negotiable. Today on the show, the world's strongest librarian. And now he spent the morning doing squats with Barbara Kingsolver, Colin McEnroe. It's a private matter, however. Um, all right, so we have, I mean, Josh Hanegarn, he's sort of the, he's the best guest in the world because he's, he's like eight guests in one or something. He's, uh, he's the world's strongest librarian. Uh, he's um, an author of a fascinating book and a, a touching and funny book called The World's Strongest Librarian. He is a um, sufferer, uh, I guess that's the right word, of Tourette's syndrome. A- and uh, he's a guy who took up weightlifting and bodybuilding and strength training as one of his many ways of alleviating the symptoms of Tourette's syndrome. Uh, his book is about all that, plus the dynamics of his very interesting family and uh, his uh, relationship with his Mormon faith um, and so much more. So you know, if if my librarians look like you, I would never bring my books back late. You know, I, they will always be on time. Uh, but you are actually, uh, as I can tell from the book, uh, a real gentle person. You, you look you look powerful and like you could crush me like a bug, though. I hope so. I'm a I'm a pushover most of the time, but when it's time to go, I'm ready. All right. So let's talk a little bit about that. I, I guess we should start with Tourette. And I think this is probably something that – or Tourette's, I guess we say it when – and then we say Tourette syndrome uh, when we're saying the whole name. And this is something that I think is dimly understood by people. If they have any notion of it at all, they've mm-hmm. seen some TV show or something where somebody yelled, yelled out bad words. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not the kind of Tourette's that you have. And uh, so tell, for, tell us people – tell people what it is in the first place. Well, uh, the least you need to know about Tourette's syndrome is it pretty much comes down to two things. It either makes people move involuntarily or they make noise.
noises involuntarily. Now, within each of those ranges, that can look and sound like a lot of different things, including the, the uncontrollable profanity and the outbursts. And I get why they do that. That's kind of Hollywood Tourette's. Uh, mm-hmm. You get the much better comedic mileage out of stuff like that than some of the things I do. But for me, um, it started when I was about six years old. My parents said I was blinking my eyes too much. This is a school play where you were a tree, right? Yeah, first grade Thanksgiving play. My, my teacher's name was actually Ms. Poindexter. I told her I wanted to be Wilbur, the pig from Charlotte's Web. And she said, no, you're going to be a tree. And so apparently I started blinking that night and the progression – Went slowly at times, more severely at others until today. I'm one of the worst cases my neurologists had ever, have ever seen. And I, I scream till I get hernias from it. I have dislocated my thumb many times. My teeth break, blah, 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 blah. But again, at the bottom of it, it's still all I, – I have the same thing as the little boy who just blinks too much. You know, It just can go in a lot of different directions, changes a lot. But movements and noises. Does does anybody really understand – I would try to do a little bit of reading about Tourette to get ready for today's show. And, and it seemed as though the understanding of, of what it is, why it happens, what role genetics and environment play Ooh. is all kind of – it's still kind of a dimly understood thing. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. It's been a long time since I've read about anything I'd consider a real breakthrough. The race is on for which genes are causing it. But until they figure that out, it, it all just seems like a lot of speculation to me. And do you have a sense beyond that what what's going on? In other words, at the level of – I mean, you're, you're a uh, compulsive habitual reader. You read everything. Um, and you're reading about Tourette's. Do you have kind of a sense of kind of what's going on inside, how it actually happens, what the mechanism is? Uh, you know, the best way I can explain it so you could – kind of understand what it's like is if you think about, oh, like the worst you've ever had to sneeze, yeah. uh, where it's right on the brink. I mean, life or death, it feels unbearable, but you could hold it in if you had to. But what happens if you hold a sneeze in? You know, nothing. It doesn't feel good. There's no resolution. It's kind of like hearing a song you know very well, but it ends one chord too early mm-hmm. and you just don't, it, like it didn't resolve. With Tourette's, the urge to have a tick, whether it's me going, woo, or barking, or, or hitting myself, or scratching myself, it kind of feels like that urge to have a sneeze mm. when it's at its worst, except when you let it out, you don't know exactly what it's going to look or sound like, and the urge, if it goes away, only goes away for a couple of seconds. So I can hold in if I need to, like I'm, I'm trying to do a little bit right now. There's always a cost for doing that, Yeah, because when it eventually does come out, it's got to equalize again. You know, like there's a quota of intensity that has to be met. Yeah, that was a hard thing, for, hard for, thing for me to understand. There's a, one scene in the book where um, you manage to create for yourself one minute of stillness that you, using breathing and, and some other stuff, you manage to get very still and quiet for 60 seconds. And you say, and you refer, Josh refers to his disorder in the book as Misty, uh, as in Miss T, Miss Tourette. Uh, and you say something like Misty exacted a big price for me for that later on. You know, I had to pay for that later on. So and it really is like that. It's like a, um, a, a balancing scale somehow. The more still you get at one moment, the more there's a toll exacted somewhere else. That's what makes sense to me. You yeah. know, that's all, those are fuzzy terms. But, yeah, that's what I know for sure. If I am not able to let it drip out in a lot of smaller ticks, um, kind of like the vent on a valve, mm-hmm. The the opposite of it is that the pipe blows at the end of the day. Like when I'm at the library, 
I have to stifle it or yeah. I just couldn't be there, which makes nights a lot harder when I go home and it does have to come out. Yeah, let's talk about the library. Okay, you work at the Salt, Salt Lake City Library. Um, it, it would seem like a strange career choice <laughs> for somebody who who had ticks, who had uncontrollable noises. I mean, we think of librarians as the people who are trying to get you to shut up, to stop making noises. So how did you wind up as a librarian? Well, I, I it took me 10 years of pecking away at an English degree to mm-hmm. finally get it done because it was very hard for me to be out in public. And once I finally got done, the only way you can celebrate your English degree is to admit that it's worthless and go do more school. <laughs> I, uh, I had actually uh, – I had a lot of time uh, – I had a really hard time keeping a job for very long. Yeah. Whether it was too hard or I let myself think it was too hard, the result was the same. I, I, it was really hard for me to be out in public. And then finally I decided I've got to do it. I've got to make a career of this, uh, of, of something. Mm-hmm. And I have a really, really stupid approach to solving problems. I, I tend to make things much harder than they need to be, and I run to extremes. And so I walked one day into the quietest place I knew and screamed and asked for a job application. That was a public <laughs> library. And I knew, give me two weeks. It's either going to chew me up and spit me out, and I will then have my license to lie on the couch and let my life go by, or... I'd be okay because, I mean, seriously, if I, I knew if I could handle a library, I'd be able to handle anything. I love libraries for way more reasons than that. Mm. But that was kind of the, the impetus for it. And now that I'm there, the reason I uh, – people keep asking me, so now you're, you're speaking all over the country and the book's doing well. When are you going to leave your job? Mm. I don't think I can leave it because being there, it is impossible for me to feel safe and to feel comfortable. I'm always exposed. Mm-hmm. And that is what makes me desperately keep asking questions of what do I do? What do I do? How can I figure this out? How, what other questions can I ask? And if I was somewhere for I, where I felt safer, I wouldn't be asking those questions. Right? I wouldn't be quite as desperate as I am. The other thing that kind of jumps, <laughs> jumps out in the book is the way that libraries these days in particular are refuges for all kinds of people. Oh, yeah. So here you are in the library with your disorder, but you're on the staff of the library. But the people who are coming into the library, there's a, there's a scene where Woo! there's a guy in somewhere in the stacks who's talking to himself. And you go over there and it turns out there's Boop. three women who Boop. are following him around that – he can't see and nobody else can see. And there's a series of vignettes like this in the book that where, in fact, you're dealing a lot of times with a public that's in the library for its own set of reasons that have to do with disorders and misfortunes. I don't, can you say a little bit more about that? I mean, there seems to be an odd kind of, once again, a kind of balancing of the scales. You're often there helping somebody else who's got a problem. Yeah, maybe. Um, I get a lot of emails from people saying, oh, I never knew libraries would, are like that. <laughs> and so the first thing I'd say is libraries are not like that. The library where I work is exactly like that. But even in our five branch locations, Mm -hmm. if you picture a small local library, they're a lot more like what you're picturing Mm -hmm. rather than this stuff. Now, the big library I work at in downtown Salt Lake is in the flight path of a couple of homeless shelters, a lot of parks where people sleep at night, a lot of mental illness, a lot of veterans, a lot of of trouble. And um, Salt Lake really doesn't have a great setup for, uh, like, I don't even think there's one day shelter. There's nowhere for people to store their stuff. If I were a homeless person, I'd probably be at this library as well. Mm-hmm. And this presents a very interesting set of challenges because it's pub- public means public. It's it's for everyone. And that means, yeah, you, you get a little bit of everything and everybody needs uh, needs their own kind of help. 
We're talking to Josh Hanagarni. He's the uh, world's strongest librarian. He has many other things besides. We talk about the library being a refuge. Um, interestingly, you were a bookworm before you knew you had Tourette, right? I mean, you even just <laughs> referenced that when you're talking about the whole idea of playing Wilbur. Um, <laughs> you, you discovered books early on uh, as a place that you really wanted to go. Yeah, I mean, I, when, I, when you see kids come into the library, you can tell the ones whose parents read to them. Mm-hmm. It was as simple as that. I never had a chance not to love libraries. It was just always part of our day, stories, stories, stories. It wasn't even necessarily about the books. But my mom took us there every single day. And that's just, you know, just part of life. That's how it was. You know, the, uh, the, yeah. this book, by the way, this yeah. book is at times really, really funny and really, really touching and really, really interesting. And, you know, I'm about to pay you what I think is the ultimate compliment to you. You write kind of like Stephen King, who is your hero. Your writing has a little bit of the same quality that at times it it almost seems like conversation. Um, You know, and sometimes you're reading a Stephen King book. I think one of the reasons people like him is it kind of feels like somebody is really talking to you as opposed to foisting written (laughs) prose on you. Your writing has a little bit of that quality. But let's talk about the discovery of Stephen King. A lot of this was – it almost does sort of go back to the intro that we had. You were looking for big, heavy books to read, right? And you found Tommy Knockers. Yeah. Uh, when I was in fifth grade, I lived in Spring Creek, Nevada. It was the first time I ever saw a bookmobile. Yeah. Just big, fat RV on wheels full of books, and it would pull up to the curb. And, yeah, for me at the time, more pages just meant more book, better. More was better. <laughs> and the biggest book I could find was Tommy Knockers. It was like fifth grade, so yeah. way too young for this. And I was I was hooked. I mean, it scared me. It was way too much, way too soon. But that that was the start of my affair with Stephen King, fifth grade. And so here's the best part of it, though. Um, so Josh's mom is a real serious <laughs> Mormon uh, and a serious enforcer of of good standards for children and stuff like that. She tried. So it was Misery was the book that was kind of your undoing, (laughs) right? Because you left it sitting around. There was like maybe the third Stephen King book that you read. I think it was the third. Yeah, Misery is the book with the writer who gets in a uh, car accident in the snow and gets saved by a nurse who imprisons him and is crazy. And I was reading it. And I left it out, and uh, I, I came into the living room one morning, and my mom was sitting in there with this really serious look on her face. And she had the book on her lap. <laughs> and she says, Josh, sit down. And so I sat, and she said, have you read this whole book yet? And I said, no, I've, I think I'm about 100 pages in. She says, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to make your choices for you, but I need to tell you I read this whole book this morning, and it made me feel sick. I said, really? Why? She says, well, did you know she chops off his foot with an axe? Sorry. I'll, spoiler. 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 Um, but it, you've probably seen the movie. It's, it's, too, it's, it's too late. For it's not an axe in the yeah. movie, so something else <laughs> happens in the movie. Spoiler free. And so she said, did you know that she does this to him? And I said, no, why? <laughs> and it wasn't going how she planned at yeah. all. And then she'd say, well, and by the end of the book, this has happened, this has happened, and this, this is why the nurse was in prison, and my eyes were just bugging out. And so she, I was reaching for the book. I had yeah, to finish I, it. Right. <laughs> and she said, okay, no, no more Stephen King in the house for now, maybe later. And I just, I couldn't stop. Mm-hmm. So the next book I got from the bookmobile was It, which is bigger, probably bloodier, very disturbing. And so what I did, there was a, there was a book called, <laughs> I, I found another book of roughly the same size. It was Piers Anthony, right? It was Piers Anthony who writes a Xanth fantasy series, these harmless 
pun-riddled books about this fantasy kingdom named Xanth. And I switched the cover of one of these books with it and, uh, and took it home. And the book was called The Color of Her Panties. And this was like – this was some really harmless thing. Very bad calculation. Yeah, yeah. I know. But the, like the color of this girl's panties was the, the key to some dumb riddle mm-hmm. in the book was all. And it just didn't occur to me at all that my mom, who didn't want me to read about this killer clown and all these dead children, might have any problem at all with a book you know, with panties on the cover and these people in their underwear. So she saw what I had done. I had even taped the covers down on the book because mm-hmm. that cunning – and she came in, and I just I just remember us looking at each other for the longest time, not saying anything. <laughs> <laughs> I read that story, and I started laughing because I did <laughs> almost exactly this, uh, the same thing or a version of the same thing. Oh, you this got is, it. This was a few years ago. I was writing a story for Men's Health. I'm a contributing editor at Men's Health, and they wanted ah! me to do a story, kind of an essay about <laughs> what you would what you would conclude about sex if you were like from outer space or something and you uh-huh. came to Earth and the only thing you knew about was you just watched movies. So what would you know about sex? You know, what would you, and so I wrote this essay and I handed it in my first draft and the editor calls back and he goes, well, you just, it's fine, except you just used regular movies, kind of R-rated movies. You didn't, you didn't watch any, you didn't put any porn in, uh-huh. see anything about porn. And I thought, well, geez, I, you know, I really haven't seen that much. What am I going to do? And so uh, I realized I was going to have to go to a video rental place and rent it. And there was a place called West Coast Video here in Hartford. And the problem with West Coast Video was there was this Brazilian woman who works at the cash register. And when you brought your movies up there, she'd open them up, you know, <laughs> and she'd say the name of it kind of loud just to make sure you had the right movie. So, you know, it would be like she'd open it up. She'd go, The Shining, just to make sure that that's what you were supposed to be <laughs> renting or, or, you know, whatever movie, you know, Ordinary People or whatever. So – I thought, well, I can't, like, rent this really, you know, this porn movie and have her, like, say it at the cash register. So I went into their little porn area and I picked out one or two movies based only on the (laughs) innocuousness of their titles. And while I was there, I just was walking through the store and there was a little independent movie that I had heard a lot about. I mean, a regular (laughs) legitimate independent movie that had just come out. I heard a lot about it. It was sitting on the shelf. I said, I'm going to grab that, too, because I actually do want to watch it. So I grab that. I go into the porn room. I buy – I rent movies based only on the idea that their titles don't sound like porn movies. And then I go up to the cash register, and it turns out she doesn't yell out the names of the porn movies for exactly that reason. But then she opens the one legit movie that I've rented, and she goes, Spanking the Monkey. And I thought, okay, I didn't, I didn't think this through. It's exactly like you. And when I read that story, I thought, we are, we are cousins somehow. Josh Hanagarney is with us. He is uh, the author of The World's Strongest Librarian. Before we take a break, let's finish up with Stephen King. You, you pretty much read everything, right? I mean, it's, I, I can sit here and tell you how impossible – it is to read everything that Stephen King has written. But have you done it? Do you have you, have I, you done I, it all? As far as I know, yeah. But I've, wow. I've just taken it as they come. Yeah. You know, he, he writes a lot, but it's not like, like James Patterson where there's a new 900-page Stephen King novel every three months. No, but there's a lot, a lot of them. And why do you think he speaks to you? What, and what, what do you think you like about him so much? Well, my, my favorite thing about Stephen, he, he, he tells great stories. I mean, that, mm-hmm. I, I, I honestly now, once I'm done with my English degree, I don't think about things very much beyond that when I don't have to. Mm-hmm. Um, he writes the kind of stories I like to read, and I read a lot of everything. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I can talk about trash and the literary high style, you know, and you'd beg for mercy. Most importantly, I love it when I can tell how much fun an author had writing. Mm-hmm. And Stephen gets a lot of criticism by people who say, that's crap, that's trash, that's schlock, whatever. He would be the last one to tell you he is some incredibly important guardian of the high style. Mm-hmm. 
he does the best he can with what he has. He's been incredibly encouraging. He just seems like a decent guy. Mm-hmm. And so part of my love for it is just I have such great memories. I, I can't think of another man out there who's given me as much pleasure <laughs> over mm-hmm. that many years as Stephen King. And I'm, I'm in his debt. I always will be. So I hope you're all enjoying your Memorial Day. This is actually an interview from last year. And Josh's book, The World's Strongest Librarian, is now out in paperback. That's one of the reasons we decided to re-air it for you today. And we'll be back after this. Population one. talking to Josh Hanagarni, we've barely even scratched the surface of the story of the world's strongest librarian. I think we have to get into the strongest part. Um, one of the things that's uh, in this book is uh, the story of kind of you discovering <laughs> you're looking in the book, you're looking for ways to cope with Tourette's syndrome, things that distract you or distract your body or just, you know, occupy you in a way that seem to, um, seems to interfere with the, the triggers for, for the tics. And uh, guitar playing helps, kind of seems to almost have a kind of a trance-like quality that, that keeps it away. But but at a certain point, I think it's your dad uh, takes you to a gym. Just, just sort of talk about your, your initial relationship with lifting weights. Sure. I, I, was, uh, I was serving I'm, – I'm no longer LDS, but I was a Mormon missionary when I was 19. <laughs> and that was uh, when my tics actually just went berserk. Mm-hmm. Up until that point, it had just kind of been a nuisance. And when I was in Washington, D.C., I was a Spanish-speaking missionary – I started hitting myself in the face all of a sudden. Before this point, it had never been more than vocal and just facial tics. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, long story short as far as that, it was off to the races. And my, my body started convulsing so badly, so often, so hard, I couldn't, I couldn't keep food down. Mm-hmm. I weigh about 260 right now. I'm 6'7". And when I came home, I weighed 160 <laughs> and was 6'7". Wow. I, could, I couldn't eat. Wow. So we started slowly easing back into that. And that was when my dad said, come to the gym with me. If, if nothing else, maybe we can help you put the weight back on. Mm-hmm. Really hard for me to be out in public at this point. <laughs> but I was able to do it <clears throat> at the gym. And some of this I've only realized in hindsight. I was amazed at how much I loved it. Mm-hmm. And it was the only time every day where, you know, 30 or, or 60, 90 minutes, whatever, where I felt like I had control of my body. Mm-hmm. There's been kind of a misconception that the that strength training helps with my tics. It generally makes it worse. But what it gives me, it makes everything else better, however. I, mm-hmm. It gives me a type of progress I can measure. And that was something I didn't have in any other way. Uh, I, that is when I started screaming to the point where I got a hernia. Mm-hmm. And if you've ever fallen out of an exercise program, you can probably guess, what, you know, once I was able to lift again, I just didn't go back to it. Wouldn't get back in hard until I was 20, oh, like 27, 28. And then kind of like with the guitar, when something helps me, I generally get in all the way. So mm-hmm. I wound up kind of on the fringe of the fringe of the fringe with these increasingly eccentric strongman characters. Because for me, I, I mean, I wanted to learn from everybody I could find because better results, bigger numbers means more control, means mm-hmm. a higher quality of life. I think it could have happened with anything I, I had glommed onto that I could measure. It just happened to be the weights. 
It's uh, there are some amazing characters in the book. I, is, this, is this book headed for the screen? I feel like it's a, just a natural for a movie. Has there been? There must be some interest in it. The only thing I've ever heard is that when I I was embarrassed, they put me at the Four Seasons in St. Louis on the book tour. It was way too fancy. They had this giant bathtub. I hadn't taken a bath in like. 20 years and so I had to and they had a bath cap (laughs) so I was wearing the bath cap and my wife took a picture and I sent it to my agent on a text message and she responded with oh I'm going to send this to the big shot producer who's asking about the rights Mm -hmm. that is literally the only movie talk there's ever been was the response to my bath cap photo as as far as I'm aware I find myself (laughs) trying to cast the role of Adam Glass oh you couldn't He's this very, very larger-than-life, I mean physically larger-than-life and larger-than-life character in the book, this kind of strength-training guru who has this very different approach and who – who I, yeah, actually, you know, I, I, I think it's going to be hard for either of us to describe your encounter with Adam Glass. You almost have to read the book for this part, particularly because the dialogue is, is – both funny and shocking. <laughs> there's nothing. There's no one like Adam. And and honestly, for anyone hearing this or who reads the book, Adam is only slightly less mysterious to me even today than he's going to be to you. Uh, Adam is tests very highly on the autism spectrum, and he was serving in Baghdad with the Air Force when there was a riot in a prison. He was in charge of got his brain crushed by a tent stake, and his personality changed at this point. And he started to be able to see different things in the way people move. He, he's uh, he's the one who got me into the strongman stuff because he's incredibly, j- just incredibly strong. And I wanted, you know, for the reasons I said, mm-hmm. I wanted to be able to learn from as many people as possible. And I didn't understand really what I was getting into with this guy. He's he's an incredible fighter, incredibly strong, incredibly scary, very loyal. And so I'm in this interesting position of my best friend is someone who isn't my friend mm-hmm. because he doesn't bond emotionally with people. And he's unbelievably blunt, too. The first time he meets you, he spends a little bit of time with you, and he goes, why the hell haven't you killed yourself by now or something like that? C- kind of. I mean, it he, It wasn't totally literal. Yeah. But, but, I mean, Adam, he, he's made a ton of progress. Anyone who knows him will say he's he's socially much better than he used to be. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, there, there was just no filter. Um, we were in a Best Buy in Minot. And we were walking down the aisle, and I hit myself. And, you know, that that flat smack, nothing else sounds like it. Mm-hmm. And he turned around, and he said, are you kidding? <laughs> and when we got back in the car, he said, did you notice how all the workers were looking at me when they thought I hit you? <laughs> and I said, they thought I hit you. Yeah. That's that's what they were looking at. And he just, this is like the first time I really saw him laugh. He, goes, he said, oh, they know what would have happened if you'd hit me. <laughs> we wouldn't have walked out together. At a certain point in the book, towards the end of the book, you know, you're sort of, as you say, it's not really that weightlifting helps and sometimes it almost seems to be making it worse. But you start looking for other ways to to, to kind of channel the Tourette's or, and also the incredible strength you've gotten through weightlifting. And you discover the Highland Games. I, I love this. Explain about the Highland Games. The Highland Games are the Scottish heavy athletics. If people have seen it, it's generally the guy throwing the telephone pole. It's called the caber. But the Highland Games are throwing events pretty much. There's the caber toss. There's various types of throwing rocks and and weights for distance and for heights. Uh, My decision-making process is not a well-oiled machine. I was looking for (laughs) something to to shake up my training a little bit. Happened to see, I believe it was somebody's Facebook avatar in a kilt. And like 24 (laughs) hours later, had registered for my first Highland Games. 
So yeah, I bought a $70 kilt from sportkilt.com. Very high quality. And that was that was kind of the start of that. Uh, throwing was something I'd never done before. Mm-hmm. It gave me a, gave me something different. Um, how how good are you at it? I couldn't really tell because the book kind of ends. I think yeah. at your first set of Highland Games, are you do you win medals and stuff? Or do you? You know, I won a Class B amateur champion commemorative stein <laughs> that is sitting <laughs> on my shelf at home, and I won fifty dollars at that one. So yeah. yeah, I'm I'm like a professional athlete now. Uh, my, it's interesting. I have a really good foundation. I've done so much heavy training for so long mm-hmm. that, you know, I can just kind of, I can get away with simply horsing some things around, mm-hmm. but throwing's very different. The weights in the Highland games aren't very heavy. I, you never throw anything heavier than 50 pounds. Mm-hmm. And so there are guys much lighter than me who can absolutely kill me because yeah. they've, they've drilled years on technique. You know, people say, what makes you the strongest? And it's a, it leads to an interesting question I'll, I'll ask you. Uh, what would prove to you definitively that one person was stronger than another? That's a Adam Glass kind of question, actually. Um, no, this one's mine. That's for sure. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, you think, you think of the strongest person being maybe the, you, the Olympic weightlifting champion in any given year. But there's, a, there's different kinds of strength. And as you say— you know, I mean, people who have a great throw from right field in the major leagues, they often don't have big arms. They just they have the motion perfectly. They have the mechanics perfectly. They can make mm-hmm. a ball go like a laser to home plate. Um, that's also a lot of <coughs> true for boxers. I've written a bit about boxers and punching. Some, sometimes the hardest punchers are not big, yeah. huge, heavy guys. It's just that uncoiling release that they have. Uh, it, it's something, you know, that's it's it, they're born with it. Yeah, without specifics, the, the question – of who is stronger is kind of meaningless. I have a lot of people ask me, so how much can you lift? Mm-hmm. As if that is a really serious question with a specific answer. And when somebody just says, how much can you lift? I generally just say, 1,000 pounds. <laughs> and they go, whoa. You know, they never wonder what lift. What mm-hmm. I mean, it's I don't know if I can lift 1,000 pounds of anything. Mm-hmm. But like my, my sister's a ballerina. She has amazing body control. Is, is the ballerina stronger than the marathon runner? Is the marathon wrong? runner stronger than the guy who can deadlift 600 pounds Mm -hmm. is the 300 pound man who can deadlift 600 pounds he's actually weaker than the 100 pound woman who can deadlift 350 pounds uh what about the guy who can do 30 pull-ups in a row just you gotta you gotta give the question some context for it to be meaningful so as far as like being the strongest librarian i just kind of liked the title i thought it was funny It, (laughs) it may very well be true you got to decide what you mean by strength first. It's a great point. I had, in high school, had a friend who was uh, a mime, and he actually went to France and studied with uh, mime with the attend crew. But like a lot of mimes, he was kind of a skinny guy, not very tall, skinny guy, probably weighed 135 pounds, if that. Uh, but when you think about what mimes have to do, they have to train their muscles so they can simulate a wall that's not there or a wind that's not there. The kind of muscle training that's involved there is intense. And one day we were horsing around in one of the classrooms, and three or four guys from the football team just playfully tried to pin this guy down. They couldn't do it. He was kind of tossing them off. He had muscles yeah. where people don't have muscles. Yeah, absolutely. It's, but you, you are. You're very strong. We were just talking about whether – it's probably actually against the law, but whether you could lift one of the Carl Andre boulders that's a part of Stonefield sculpture here in Hartford. So what's, what's your heaviest rock? Because I know you like to pick up rocks. I've got a 400-pound stone I can put on my shoulder from yeah. the ground now. That, um, that's probably the heaviest I've tried. Uh, when people ask about my numbers, it's, 
they're, they're kind of disappointed sometimes. Like guys in my weight class, like in powerlifting, mm-hmm. can double anything I can do. Yeah. And the problem I have is my, my tics are so physical and so, and so violent on my joints in some ways. Mm-hmm. I'm almost always hurt. Yeah. So for me, the point is always to be stronger than yesterday, mm-hmm. but I'm constantly starting over. My, my options for what I can do today is always restricted to what lift can I do today without pain. Mm-hmm. I, there's no way I could say I'm going to do a bench press competition in 10 weeks and know that I could bench press for 10 weeks in preparation. I'd get hurt yeah. because of a tick and have to do something else. But the foundation's there. You know, I'm definitely stronger than most people who don't train, would get laughed out of the gyms of most people who are seriously strong competitively. Mm. Yeah, you look pretty, uh, first of all, a 400-pound stone on your shoulder. I don't think you have to apologize. I mean, Oh, no, no apologies. I, just, I don't want anybody getting too impressed too soon. So uh, my feet of strength for you, these is, uh, I have a jar of Trader Joe's Julian sliced <laughs> sun-dried tomatoes. Let's see you open it, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Strong. Man. I am not used to humidity, so this okay. might go horribly. Oh, I am a sweaty sorry. pig in here. Oh, he's got it. He got it. Yeah, and so I do this. I'm like running that under hot water and hitting it, hitting it with the side of things and stuff. He just did it like it was nothing. All right, bring, All me, right. bring me your Julienne. You are you are the world's strongest. I, bring, <laughs> I do have also a small bag of Snyder's pretzels. We may try those later. That's also very difficult to open. Uh, we're here with uh, Josh Hanagarney. You know, you have a son, Max, and uh, so he appears in the book. And and obviously, one of the areas of anxiety for you is is whether or not Max is going to get this thing. It's I don't know. I, the limited reading I did about it said sort of it's like a 50-50 thing, or is it more subtle than that? You know, it might not be 50-50. It, it is genetic, mm-hmm. but my parents didn't have it. Right. You know, but some combination of their genes gave it to me. I believe what I read at one point was that my son has a 25% chance better of having it mm-hmm. because I have it. Yeah. So when he was about two and a half, I started. I saw him start having what looked like his first ticks. Very happy to say, haven't seen anything in the two years mm-hmm. since. So we just don't know right now. Uh, it it is interesting because it's always on my mind. When uh, last summer I got asked to speak at a camp for kids with Tourette's at Gettysburg, mm-hmm. and you could watch. This was my first time being around a big group of people with Tourette's. Yeah, you could watch the ticks jump from person to person. Mm-hmm. I'd pick up theirs, they'd pick up mine. This is just the way it is. So with Max, I have this fear. Max is my son. I, I have this fear. I, I try to stifle it around him more than anyone else because I know he's got this latent potential for it. And, like, I don't, I don't want to be the trigger, mm-hmm. although there's no guarantee that he has it or that he's not just mimicking me. But I have a harder time being around him in some ways than anyone else because I, he's the one I can't really just let it go around. Right. For that fear. And towards the end of the book, what? actually, it's like the guy at the, these Highland games, Max is just blinking, you know, maybe because he's got something in his eye or something and you're maybe. hovering him over there. But is it, you know, it, first of all, I'd like to get a little bit more from you about that, about what happens when you go, even forget about the camp in Gettysburg for a second. When you go out to do a, a book talk in public, um, I'm assuming there are quite frequently people in the audience who have Tourette's who, you know, I mean, do they come? To see you specifically and to sort of either share with you or, or, or just talk about the fact that, that you know, you've, you've been able to put into words something that they never have? Yes, m- many do. One of my heroes is a guy with uh, Tourette's named Brad Cohen. Brad was the subject of a movie called Head of the Class in, uh, on the Lifetime channel. And a really amazing story. Look him up. But Brad was in the audience in Atlanta. I didn't know he was going to be there. And there was this guy in the audience having crazy ticks. So it set me off. I'm generally fine if I'm talking. Mm-hmm. But this was so extreme. We were both just bang, 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 call and response. 
And I had to stop at one point and say, good grief, aren't we a pair? <laughs> and I think that's why some people come. Is, yeah. is Sometimes that's all you can get is just somebody to look at each other and you can both just say, good grief, look at us. Yeah. Um, we got a call. Uh, speaking, <coughs> speaking of that, we got a call from George in Wallingford. Hi, George. What you were just saying uh, got my attention about uh, setting each other off to people with Tourette's talking to each other. Mm-hmm. And because uh, I have Tourette's syndrome, I'm 64, and I was diagnosed not until I was 35 years old because it was just ignored all my life. And um, but I part of Tourette's for me was uh, a mimicking aspect where I would mimic other people's tics if I saw them. So if I had to have a conversation with someone else that had Tourette's, uh, we were kind of funny to look at, but we were having conversations without looking at each other. We had to sit and uh, sit back to back to talk to each other. Um, Um, Now, one of the – I know Josh talked about looking for things that uh, would bring relief. And in my case, uh, it wasn't for Tourette's that I did this. I was – on kind of a spiritual journey, and I became a meditator to the point where I actually spent some time in India uh, learning meditation. And one of the byproducts of it was I had probably reduced my tics and the effects on me, I want to say, by probably 70% after, you know, a life lifetime bout with this. And um, so that was just, that was just a... Uh, uh, a result, and you know, uh, like I said, a byproduct. One of the things I, I have, I, I have uh, yeah. what they call full orchestrated body ticks. So, in order to uh, laugh at myself, I, I began trying to take credit for inventing break dancing. <laughs> <laughs> I can see between you and Josh that a sense of humor is. Uh... Uh, really helpful for for coping with this whole thing, Josh. Y- y- your book does cover sort of your version of meditation. Right? I mean, when I'm when I was talking kind about of. that sixty seconds of stillness, it's kind of really what similar to what he's talking about. I think kind of after my first week with Adam, it was about two months after that where I was after thirty years of trying, I was able to sit still for that sixty seconds. Now there there's too much to get into here, but br- breathing was a lot of my ideas are tied into breathing mm-hmm. about how Tourette's works, just like the gentleman was saying. And when I sold this book, it was going to be a book about how I had cured myself. I really thought that had happened. When I sold the books, I was in the middle of a full year with almost no ticks because of some of these things I'd been doing with Adam and some things I was now tracking. I was actually at the point where I was trying to figure out how do I replicate this with other people with Tourette's. Mm -hmm. And then my brain doesn't know the difference between good stress and bad stress. And then it all just roared back. Some different things happened all at once, including the book deal. And I'm now, I'm now far worse today at 35 than I ever was at any time. Um, the difference now is after, because I had that year off, mm-hmm. I, I, may, I feel like I'm able to hope in a more productive way than I was. When bad spells would set in previously, they came with the sick dread of all I can do is wait this out. Mm-hmm. And now, because I had that time off, as a result of, I believe, certain questions we were asking, it feels more like an issue of what am I not seeing? What am I not trying? What else can I ask? Mm-hmm. And so that's been a huge part of the relief for me. All the things that distract me, like talking, guitar, sometimes a little video game I play for my son, they're all the times, including sleeping, when I breathe like everybody else mm-hmm. without any interruption. I really think there's something to that. Have you tried cycling? Cycling, I, I feel for me that's my sport these days. And I feel like my breath gets really regulated in cycling. Uh-huh. I'm just, you know, out on a bicycle and uh, – 
I don't know. Yeah, I, I ride a bike. I wouldn't say I, I do much cycling. No, I, I probably ride a bike about as much as you do. <laughs> I just call it cycling because it sounds better. Here's uh, Carol in Southbury, and we'll have to take a break after this. But uh, our guest is Josh Hanagarney, and uh, here's Carol. Hi, Carol. Hi. I just wanted to say hi to Josh. I just finished reading your book last night, took it back to the library this morning. I wish I still had it here. But um, I had a cousin who had Tourette's and, in the 60s, and his mother was very um, involved in, um, in all of the up-and-coming you know, treatments. And you hadn't mentioned anything so far in the book or today about nutrition and foods. She was very careful about no dyes, no flavorings, you know, all that kind of thing. She kept him on a very strict diet, and it seemed to have helped. And I wondered if that was something you'd ever tried. Take it away. Uh, to my knowledge, I've tried just about everything that is tried with nutrition. <laughs> and not, not much of it has proven very useful to me. I can tell you for a fact that stimulants affect me. They mm -hmm. make ticks worse. I'm too stupid to cut back on it. Mm -hmm. So don't go feeling too sorry for me, you know, as anyone who might be hearing this. I, I, there are some things I definitely accept because I, I like my diet Pepsi and mm. I'm going to eat what I'm going to eat. I know a lot of people who have had great results with fooling around with their nutrition mm. and altering small things. So if that if that is working, yes, absolutely anyone with Tourette's, go for it. It's a pretty easy experiment to try. Um, let's uh, take a quick break here. We'll come back. We're not going to have too much time. The hour is flying by here, but we'll have a few more minutes. And uh, I see Paul on the line, too. We'll get back to calls and to Josh. I'm in love with a strong man, and he tells me he's wild about me. I'm in love with a guy who is everything around. For my next feat of strength, I'm going to rip Stephen King's Under the Dome in half. <laughs> wow, that's really thick. Maybe the ebook version instead. Patrick was going to get a new iPad soon anyway, I'm sure. Today's show was produced by Patrick Scahill, Betsy Kaplan, and me, with help from our interns, Jules Lefevre and Allison Ehrenreich. The part of Bill Curry was played by Jonathan Franzen. And now...
back to Colin. Right now we're with Josh Hannigan. He is the uh, author of and the title figure of The World's Strongest Librarian. Josh, one thing we haven't really touched upon and, and is if it weren't a compelling enough story that you're a six-foot-seven-inch librarian who has Tourette syndrome and copes with it through weightlifting and bodybuilding and strength training and Highland Games and playing the guitar – Another thing you think kind of running through the book is you're, you live in Salt Lake City. You're the offspring, as you put it, of a Mormon and a Navajo, although I think he's like only one quarter Navajo, yeah. so you're one eighth Navajo. But, but, <laughs> you, but, but you were brought up Mormon. And one of the other things that's kind of running through this book is a really interesting conversation that you're kind of having with yourself and with your Mormonism about how that plays out as part of your overall story. And you're, you're kind of on again, off again, it almost seems a little bit as, I mean, where, where are you these days with all that? Oh, I'm, I'm off. You're off? Well, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm all the way off. I, I don't have any, I mean, no agenda, no desire to take anything away from anyone that gives them any peace. Mm-hmm. What I realized during the, during the hardest times for me, and this is, you know, not, not meant to be a generalization. This is just what happened to me. Mm-hmm. I had spent so long just lying on couches and not making things happen and trying and failing. And uh, one of the things I realized was that I – the thought that there was going to be another life was making it easy, easier for me to be lazy in this life. Mm-hmm. It's like, uh, you know, because if I talked to my mom and things were bad, we'd actually say things like, yeah, but think about how still you're going to be able to sit in heaven. Mm-hmm. Think about how calm you'll be able to be. When I was not able to be out in public, I, th- that obviously included church, which was so quiet. And it wasn't until I, I was forced to take some time away from church that I was suddenly able to ask certain questions. And it's mm-hmm. not like I never – it's not like I – before I, I didn't ask things like, well, could evolution be true? Or what, what if there's no afterlife? What if this is wrong? It's not like I, I wasn't asking those questions because I've been told not to. It was just like they couldn't occur to me. Mm-hmm. And in hindsight, this concerned me as somebody who uh, I, I mean, I pride myself on being a, a curious person. I simply had fewer questions available to me, and so that that mattered to me more than I thought it would. Now, when you if you really want to know what you think and what your opinions are, or if you even have them, sit down and try to write a book about yourself. <laughs> When you get confronted with your own thoughts over and over, draft after draft, you really figure out who you are. And in my case, what I will say is there, a, there has been a cost to my curiosity that I happily pay that the religion no longer fits into. Mm-hmm. It, it no longer improves my understanding of the world in any way currently. I feel like I, for the first time, have some objectivity that I can ask any question I want because I'm not in the middle of it. That objectivity, for all I know, may be what leads me back into it one day. Uh, I, I think that's doubtful, but that's pretty much it. I, I'm uncomfortable with anything that limits the amount of questions I'm able to ask, and that that's kind of where we're at. Um, the <coughs> I, I, I think it's sort of come through. I have particularly fallen in love with this part of the book where he meets uh, Adam Glass, and and they, they have these sort of almost. I don't know. They're, they they are. It's like some playwright. I can't quite put my finger on the playwright, but the conversations between Josh and Adam Glass are are both hilarious and very thought provoking. And so their their conversation about the Mormon piece is uh, terrific too. I mean, once again, there's no way to do justice of it. You just have to read the book. Uh, it's it's pretty amazing. So um, you've also what's what's the name of your blog? You're, I, I'm blocking the name of your blog. The blog is just WorldStrongestLibrarian.com. Yeah, that's also something. If you want to sort of let Josh get to know him a little bit better, we totally recommend. And I, I know from your blog, you've actually finished another book, right? I have turned in the next book to my agent. Nobody's promised me anything yet. It's fiction. It might be crap. 
we'll uh, hopefully know something soon. <laughs> um, was that a different – I mean, obviously, it was a very different task for you. I mean, as you say, writing a memoir is 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 examining a life that you've lived and you've known. You're, you are, as you just suggested, seeing it in a brand new way. But it's different from having to invent something completely, you know. Yeah. I, I mean, nonfiction comes very easily to me. This fiction book is a young reader, like kind of like a Roald Dahl type thing. Yeah. Um, when I write nonfiction, I can tell when I have nailed something. Mm-hmm. I, I have a pretty good sense of what I should be confident about. It's just not there with fiction. Yeah. All I can tell you for sure is look at this page. I loved that. Right. I hope that's good. That, that's kind of more how it feels. So when I write about me, it's more like reporting. It's, hard, it's much harder work to try to squint into your imagination and see something to the level of detail where you can describe it. The same way I could look around this room and actually describe it memorably. We hope you enjoyed this interview. It was one of our favorites from last year. We're going to have a whole week of fresh shows for you coming up, but I do hope you enjoy the rest of your Memorial Day. Wolf, I just bought Josh's book, and in a gesture of commitment, I'm going to rip the receipt in half. Man, even his receipts are tough.